Are you curious why developing new drugs is becoming increasingly challenging despite advancements in technology and an influx of capital in the pharmaceutical industry? If so, then you won't want to miss our podcast recording with Dr. Jack Scannell, an expert in R&D productivity and CEO of Atheros Pharmaceuticals. The other thing, arguably, was around the sort of misindustrialization of science. The sort of the big idea is that quality beats quantity. A certain amount of quantity is necessary, right? But but in early drug discovery, predictive validity, the degree to which your model output correlates with human clinical utility, is critically important. And over time, the only tool you have for measuring the height of the fruit is the rate at which you're picking fruit. And you notice that the rate at which you're picking fruit is declining. Mm. You will always blame the low-hanging fruit problem. But it's also clear, I think, when capital is freely available, the average quality goes down. In this discussion, Dr. Scannell will delve into the causes of the decline in drug development productivity, explore potential solutions, and share his insights on the interplay between society politics and scientists in solving complex problems. Join me for an informative and thought-provoking conversation with one of the leaders in the industry. Here we go. Now we are connecting to the live stream. It usually takes a few minutes until we should hopefully go live on Zoom, um, LinkedIn. Let me just check. Yes. I can see myself on LinkedIn, which is very good. Okay. And, uh, I've, got, I've got as few windows open as possible just to avoid any potential problems. So good to see that we have uh, an audience here. So 80 people signed up and I'm very happy to see you, Jack. How are you doing today? Very well, very well. It's a very, it's a very miserable grey day in Edinburgh, but uh, you know that, like, I'm used to that by now. Yeah, it seems to be that we have the same weather. When I look outside the window here from Vienna, Austria, it's also... More like um, nice fall weather. It's rainy. It's grey sky. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, when we're here in the winter, I'm looking out my window now. Here in the winter, when it's cloudy, it sometimes doesn't really get properly light. You know, so it's, mm. it's one of those days today. So sitting in and doing a, a call is uh, is not a bad way of spending the time. Yeah, it's a good uh, good uh, uh, opportunity to spend time in winter to have some webinars. And yeah. today we are talking about R&D productivity. Let me give you first a little bit of my background where I'm coming from so that uh, we frame the episode and then maybe we talk about uh, where you're coming from, what your background is, and then we dive into the topic. I started working in life science in 2006 and was deeply impressed about the complexity and the currency of drug development process processes. It's uh, way back. And bottom line was, so my key learnings were one is everything that is not safe and effective doesn't reach the market. The second key learning, and of course, since I have a background uh, in economics, was focusing on the dynamics of the market. The second key learning was that the majority of uh, drugs fail. Um, the ballpark figures that I remember is that uh, basically 99 out of 100 potential drug candidates already fail in the scientific phase of the research and development process. And Still, when we go towards the clinical phase, nine out of 10 fail. And back in 2006, I got the number uh, that 
to develop a drug from science to the market, it costs approximately $1 billion. Wow, it's a very big number. And the amazing thing was that the probability of success was pretty low. So I think uh, when we calculate it through, it's probably less than 1% from science to the market. Uh, and I thought, that's it. I'm fine. I know the figures. Now I can work in the industry and keep going. And it took me 12 years to realize it was the beginning of the pandemic uh, that the situation changed. So in 2020, I worked on a project, uh, worked together with scientists and came up with the usual story that I told you right now. It's expensive. Probability of success is low and uh, it costs one billion. And they looked at me and said, no, you're wrong. And I said, no way, no way. I did my numbers and I'm sure that I'm right. And they convinced me that I was wrong. They said, now drug development process to get the drug to the market is about three to $4 billion. And this was the time when I started thinking, okay, why, why is that? Normally, I mean, we have Moore's law, we have other laws that say, um, that industries over time reduce cost, everything gets uh, cheaper and is quicker to the market. And it seems to be differently in the pharma industry. In the last months, uh, last of 2022, I had a webinar with uh, Marco Schmidt and we were talking about his company and artificial intelligence. And I was slowly drifting away. And at one point he said, Christian, do you know E-Room's law? And I said, yeah, 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 I know all laws. And then I thought, no, actually not. What, what's E-Room laws? I know, I know Moore's law. And he brought up your name. So I thought it's a good idea to invite you to this podcast. Uh, since you are, in my opinion, one of the best experts in R&D drug productivity and get your perspective into the discussion and out on the market, what's happening in the pharma industry, actually. Well, I, that, that's a very kind introduction. Uh, and I'll tell you a bit about my background and about, about my interest in productivity. Um, and I think the first thing I'll say is I think one of the reasons I've done work on R&D productivity that's been widely read is not necessarily because I know more about it than other people, but I think I, I've, I've had different institutional biases Right. So there are lots of people who are very expert who are in jobs that make it difficult for them to be frank. <laughs> and I think by, by sort of an accident of career, some of the jobs I've had, it's, it's just made it easier for me to do and publish the analyses that probably other people, had they wanted to, could have done and published. So, so I'll tell you about my background. So I uh, studied medicine a very long time ago. Uh, I, I didn't finish my medical studies. During my medical training, I did a PhD in computational neuroscience. Uh, I worked as an academic neuroscientist for a few years. And then around 2000, I jumped across into the consulting industry, worked at a company called Boston Consulting Group, where I did quite a lot of work on in the pharma industry. But I did a lot of, I did a lot of other things as well, right? I wasn't just doing drug industry work, but I did a fair bit of drug industry work. And I remember I had an office mate who was writing a sort of, you know, like companies like Boston Consulting Group and McKinsey have to do these kind of, you know, big sort of thematic pieces to, to, to uh, convince their clients that they've got interesting things to say. And a, a, a roommate of mine who really hadn't done much science was writing a piece about how genomics was going to be fantastically transformative for the drug industry. And, I, and having been a sort of computational slash systems neuroscientist, I was sort of somewhat sceptical and I, um, possibly too sceptical in retrospect, right? but I was sceptical. And I remember this got me digging out um, R&D productivity trends. And it was then that I first 
came across the productivity trends, which actually I published about 12 years later um, under the name of Eream's Law. So I worked at Boston Consulting Group for a while, and then I moved into drug and biotech investment. Uh, and I sort of, between then and now, so between about 2005 and now, I bounced around between drug and biotech investment, sort of academic slash policy work, and also doing proper biomedical science, right? So I worked in drug discovery for a while at a sort of bioinformatics slash AI-oriented drug discovery company with some of my former computational neuroscience friends. That, that was doing proper science. And actually now I've sort of returned to proper science in a sense in, in that I'm involved in starting up a little biotech company with some assets around neurodegeneration mm -hmm. uh, and health span. Sorry. But the, the sort of e-rooms law term and the R&D productivity work really stemmed from work I did, first of all, that I got interested in when I was at Boston Consulting Group, but then actually I pursued a lot more when I was working in investment. And this was when I was working in investment, I'd say between about 2007 and 2012. And that was a period when productivity trends in the drug industry were really, really depressing, right? So things are actually much more optimistic than they were in 2010. But in 2010, people really were thinking that the drug industry simply had sort of lost the ability to discover drugs, right? Um, and I was particularly interested by the contrast between input and output efficiency, right? So I sort of spent a lot of my formative years as a scientist um, used to apparently seeing all of the technologies get better. You know, so DNA sequencing had got 10 billion times cheaper. X-ray crystallography for looking at protein structures, you know, had got thousands of times cheaper. Um, you know, we could make transgenic mice in which to test drugs. There's a whole bunch of things which should be getting much, much better, faster, better, cheaper. But the work at BCG and then subsequently in my investment career told me that the drug industry was spending 100 times more in, infl in inflation-adjusted terms to discover a drug in 2010 than it was in 1950. Right. And that the clinical trial failure rates were higher in 2010 than they were in 1970. And although lots of people had written about the productivity challenge, this had really been a sort of theme probably in the drug industry since possibly the early 80s, that things were getting harder. Um, no one had really contrasted the input, the, the input efficiency with the output efficiency. Right, So it looks pretty bad if things are getting harder, but if things are getting harder while your inputs are getting much, much better and quicker and cheaper, that's, that's actually a more awkward problem. And I coined the term e-rooms law really to draw attention to the contrast. So many of the inputs were following something that looked like Moore's law, Moore's law being a sort of a, 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 a law, not really a law, but a sort of a trend identified by a guy called Gordon Moore, who I think was one of the founders of Intel. And it was to do with the, the rate at which the number of transistors you could put on a chip doubled, right? So chips were getting faster, better, cheaper. Um, and this seemed to be an exponential process, right? So it was a roughly constant doubling time in terms of chip efficiency. And drug R&D productivity, at least in terms of output, there was a sort of inverse, there was a sort of halving time of efficiency. So once every nine years, roughly, roughly, between 1950 and 2010, the number of drugs discovered per billion dollars spent halved, right? And, and so E-Room's e law was a kind of joke, so, E-Room being more backwards, right? If you spell more backwards, it's E-Room. So hence, hence the invention of E-Room's law. One more question, sorry to interrupt you, but isn't it interesting? You always perceived, especially Europe with uh, Horizon Europe, that a lot of capitalists... Um, 
going towards basic science and especially also in drug development. So it looks to me after what you said right now is that the output efficiency was going down while more and more and more input was put into the process. Isn't that yeah. an interesting development? Yeah. And, and, it's, and, and I think it's underexplored in the policy world mm. right, and in public policy. And it's arguably underexplored in the sort of broad discourse around the drug industry because it's not it's not a trend that the experts want to advertise right mm. so if you're a biomedical scientist you don't want to signal to your government that actually there is less there is less sort of useful output being produced for increased investment right so you so you have a sort of rhetorical scientific optimism both in industry and academia, that is kind of disconnected from the long-term productivity trends. But there's there's, uh, no, there's another question that pops up in my mind. Um, what, what, what is the right measure for R&D productivity? I mean, um, in my opinion, one measure could be that you say, okay, approved drugs is one way to say, but also on the other hand, uh, not every drug that enters the process should reach the patient because it can not every drug can be safe and some drugs are not effective. So in your opinion, what is the right measure for R&D productivity? Well, so when I worked in finance, the answer was easy, right? It was a financial return measure. It was, you know, return. You know, there's more than one return investment measure, but it was effectively, you know, what what was the effective interest rate you generated on your R&D capital? You know, or what, you know, that, that those are the kind of measures I was interested in. Um, now I'm not working in investment. Uh, you know, if one looks more broadly, that's a very difficult question to answer. And I think my view is actually the measures that we would most like to have are the measures we don't have. Um, so, you know, um, really, you know, again, if from a policy perspective, really one wants to know the, the amount of sort of, you know, the amount of sort of social welfare, right, or the sort of net health gains one's getting from R&D investment. And measuring those things is very fraught. It's technically difficult. Um, and I think that's a, it, it, so consequently, people deal with actually measures that aren't very good in the in the broader sense, right? So a lot of a lot of my work has been around financial measures of R and D productivity, or it's been around simple counts, right? The number of drugs approved per billion dollars. But you're absolutely right; lots of those drugs actually are not terribly useful to anyone, right? And some of them are incredibly useful to very very large numbers of people, and go on being very very useful for for, for, for decades, right? And my view is that there isn't a good calculus reflecting that. And, and, and again, without wishing to digress too much, I think, again, the public policy debate on biomedical innovation would be better served if there were better ways of evaluating the benefit of biomedical innovation. So at the moment, you have some very disparate views, right? You know, so, so, the, so depending on your sort of analytic methods, you know, there are people sort of, you know, there are respectable people arguing that actually the sort of minimal incremental health gains from pharmaceutical innovation on one hand. And then there's other people arguing actually there's enormous sort of disproportionate health gains from pharmaceutical innovation. And I think most of the disagreement between them is around methodological choice, right? So actually they're having an argument about methods, really. And, and but imagine that they're having an argument about the substantive issues. In your opinion, what is the most important productivity measure then, if this is so, such a complex field? What, what well, again, you... I don't think we have it, unfortunately. So I think actually the, so, 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 so or rather, I think sort of socially most useful productivity measures are productivity measures that, that, that are contentious and 
don't really, or rather around which there's no consensus. So it would be something like, you know, the number of, you know, some sort of net health gain, quality adjusted life year gain per unit of R&D investment. I think I think that those would be the most appropriate measures, but I just think calculating them is fraught. Yeah, then it's a, it's a very challenging uh, thing then uh, to talk uh, about productivity if this is such a complex field and we can't agree uh, can't agree on one measure. If you would uh, have to recommend one, in your opinion, uh, from the scientist's perspective, what should they focus on? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. So for practical purposes, you know, again, if for practical purposes, the work I've done over the years, I've really mm -hmm. focused on two broad sets of measures, right? One is drugs approved per unit input, mm -hmm. right? And the other one is financial return per unit input. And the financial return measure, of course, does capture, at least in aggregate, fact that you've got very skewed returns. So if you've if you know, if you for example look at a company or the industry as a whole, mm. it's comprehensive. So it includes everything. It will include the big drugs and the small drugs. Right. Uh, but 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 things are very skewed. I think if you start looking at individual drugs or individual companies, it gets more difficult. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we look, when we come from the value perspective, you have uh, a lot of small companies um, focusing, for example, on generic drugs and uh, making drugs a little bit better that are cheaper. Then you have companies like CRISPR Therapeutics, for example, who develop uh, an entire new platform of doing things with a valuation of 50 billion, 60 billion, 70 billion. And then we have the outliers, especially in recent years, I think Moderna and BioNTech. Uh, that happened to have uh, a solution in the mRNA field that has a high need at the yeah. time when they are doing the research and development. So you come to several, I think at the, at the peak, both companies together had several hundred billions right. of, of value on the market, um, which is very interesting. Which trends do you see in the R&D investment um, especially when we talk about these valuation measures, but what, what's uh, currently happening in this field? So uh, uh, rather than give you a bad answer, I'm going to sidestep that a bit, right? So I stopped working in investment in 2019, mm -hmm. right? And if you're not in it, you get stale quite quickly. Right. So I I actually, you know, I know what I'm doing now. I know, you know, I'm very focused on the relationship between model quality and technology choices in R&D productivity. And, you know, I'm, I'm working on that area. And, you know, there's a particular company that I'm trying to start at the moment. But I, I actually, you know, I don't really feel current on the sort of major themes as to what what's going on more broadly in the market. So, again, I'm not, rather than say something nonsense, I'll, I'll not say too much if you don't mind. Yeah, no problem. Um, 
I mean, the devaluation, I'm coming from the economical side, and devaluation is one of the, the key factors that I have an eye on uh, to move things forward. Um, looking at the low success rates that uh, uh, drug development companies have, uh, it's quite clear that you need uh, a drug that uh, is highly effective and is safe to refinance the investments that go into a company and that also the pharma industry has some interest to buy it. I think this is a, a basic uh, economic rules. The big question that I have now when I look on the market and when I have to recommend investments is knowing that the R&D productivity is going down. It's really difficult then to recommend to invest in that field. Um, what would be helpful at this point is to understand uh, why that happened in your opinion. From, you mentioned from 1950 to 2010, um, there was a huge decline in productivity. What were the factors that contributed the most in that area? Okay, so so I mean, taking this back to sort of financial first, right? The 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 the, the drug industry generated really good returns for its investors, and again, there's a number of different ways mm -hmm. of measuring this, right? But if we look at things like return on equity, and if you calculate it correctly, which adjusts for R and D capitalization, the R the drug industry generated really good returns for its investors. From as far back as I can look, which is the 1960s, I don't have data further back than that, up until around 2000. And then from 2000 to now, the return on equity has kind of trended down. And now it kind of bounces around, but I would say it's kind of not wildly different from other industrial sectors, but it's been on a downward trend. Mm -hmm. And the sort of simple drivers of that are effectively the R&D spending has grown faster than, than net profits, right? So... R&D efficiency has been declining probably since 950 to around 2010. But for the first 50 years of that, rev top line revenues grew very quickly. Mm. right? And then from around 2000 onwards, what happened was that the revenues started growing less quickly than the R&D. So you've gone from an industry where net margins were around 9% and R&D investment was around 5% of sales in 1960. And it stayed like that probably until the late 1970s. And now you've got an industry where both net margins and R&D spend are kind of mid to high teens percent of sales, right? So you've had that sort of adverse trend in say in net profits versus R&D. And although some people don't account for it this way, R&D investment is effectively the major capital expenditure in the drug industry. So that's made the drug industry less capital efficient. It's, it's, it's pushed down return on equity. So the question then is, well, what's, why, why does that happen? And, um, and here I'll go back to a paper I wrote in 2012, which, which coined the term E-Room's Law. And that was an attempt to sort of diagnose what was going on, right? So we've got this adverse productivity trend despite improving inputs. And in that paper, I ended up blaming a number of things. And, 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 and I'll list them, and we may want to talk about one or two of them in more detail, but some of them are pretty self-explanatory. Right, so um, one that isn't self-explanatory was something called the better than the Beatles problem, mm -hmm. which I'll talk a bit more about if you want. Another one that is self-explanatory, although I now regret my naming of it, is the cautious regulator problem. I think I, would, I wouldn't be so pejorative about the regulator if I was renaming it today. But it's clear regulatory standards have gone up. And if you raise regulatory standards, that makes R&D more expensive, right? Yeah, um, I, I couldn't agree more on that. Let me just uh, put one further. I mean, the trend that you describe um, basically leads to the outcome then at the end of the day when uh, the quantity is going down. 
uh, and the expenses are going up. Uh, it's higher prices at the end of the day for uh, for everybody on the market, for the patient especially, and for the payers. Um, bottom line economics. Um, you mentioned that there are two two main problems. So one is this uh, regulatory issue, and the other one is the better than the Beatles problem. And actually, I think there's a couple more. Actually, I think there's also I think there's a sense that mm-hmm. for much of the time re- industry returns were great. So there's a problem that we call the throw money at it tendency. So really up until mm. the year 2000, because return on R&D investment at an aggregate level was so good, virtually the, 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 the solution to almost any R&D problem was to throw money at it, right? That was the sort of rational solution. Uh, but that only remains true for a certain amount of time, and it stopped being true around 2000. Mm. Uh, and then the other thing, arguably, was around some sort of misindustrialization of science. So if 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 inputs are getting better and output efficiency is declining in a kind of R&D process. There's, there's two broad classes of explanation, right? One is that you've run out of stuff. You've got you've got some sort of resource depletion problem. And again, the best of the Beatles problem sort of alludes to that, which again, I'll explain. But the other one is actually you're doing things wrong, right? So what happens is you are now doing at lower unit cost the wrong things, right? When So actually, there's been a qualitative change in the nature of the activities that are involved in R&D. Mm. And you've substituted high unit cost but but productive activities for low unit cost unproductive activities, right? And I, so, so that was the sort of four explanations: Beth the Beatles problem, higher regulatory hurdles, a sort of general tendency to throw money at the problem, and then um, a sort of missing a sort of technological misindustrialization. Mm-hmm. And then things turned around a bit in 2010, which again you might—I'd be happy to talk about. But but but, um, but anyway, I'll, I'll, you steer where you want me to go. Um, let's jump. at uh, bring a little bit more light in these four problems that you identified. So what they are all about, and then maybe we look at the time from 2010 onwards up to now. Okay. What's going to change? You mentioned the better than the. I find the 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 name very funny, better than the Beatles problem, because I associate immediately the the musicians, the musician group. Yeah. Uh, what what what? Uh, how do you describe the better than the Beatles problem? So um, it is an allusion, an allusion to the to the group, and it, and it may show my age, right, that I chose the Beatles, but the. The sort of analogy is this. Imagine how hard it would be to successfully commercialize new music mm. if every new song had to be, A, better than the Beatles, right? B, you could download it for free. And C, you didn't get bored of listening to it. Or rather, you didn't get bored of listening to Beatles. Mm. So so um, the you do have that analogy in drugs because of genericization. So, you know, so metformin is the kind of pharmaceutical equivalent of the Beatles, right? It's an incredibly effective drug. It's, uh, uh, you know, absolutely top-performing diabetes drug. But because it's been off patent for years, it's now almost free. And doctors don't get prescribed, don't get bored of prescribing it, right? And what that means is, and in diabetes, we've now got, you know, type 2 diabetes, we've now got, you know, metformin, you've got, sulfonylureas, you've got GLP-1s, you've got DPP-4s, you've got this ever-improving back catalogue of stuff, Mm. and it goes generic. So you have a really, really good generic pharmacopoeia, and what that means is new drugs in diabetes have to compete with this ever-improving back catalogue of really good free stuff. And and that's not just in type 2 diabetes, it's in 
anti-infectives, it's in anti-hypertensives, it's in cholesterol management, right? And it's now the case that 90% of US prescriptions are for generic medicines. So this ever-improving back catalogue of virtually free stuff that's really good, it effectively undermines the economic rationale for investment in those in the therapy areas where the really good old stuff exists. And inevitably, it sort of squeezes investment in the therapy areas where there isn't lots of good old stuff. And the therapy areas where there isn't lots of good old stuff are therapy areas where for the last 100 years, the drug industry has had less success, right? So they're probably, in one way or another, difficult. Mm. Right? So that's the best of the Beatles problems, is, is this kind of, is this sort of, and, and, and you see it in some other intellectual property businesses, right? So you see it in agricultural crop protection chemicals, right? So it's not the only place you see it. But in lots of industries, the old stuff wears out, right? They're not intellectual property businesses. So, you know, so you can sell new stuff, even if it's not much better than the old stuff, because the old stuff, people need to replace it, right? So, mm-hmm. so that's an unusual characteristic of the drug industry. Um I mean, the cautious regulator problem, again, although I wish I'd called it something different, is fairly obvious. It, you know, drug R&D really was the Wild West in the, in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and, you know, the sorts of things people did then simply wouldn't, they, they wouldn't just get you in trouble with the regulators today. They'd put you in jail today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm not necessarily advocating we return to the 1950s and 60s, but, you know, having a sort of relatively laissez-faire attitude towards testing things in people was perhaps unsurprisingly quite an efficient way of finding drugs, right? And and I think what happens over time is there's a kind of ratchet so that when things go wrong, you introduce new regulations to stop them going wrong, but we rarely take away the old regulations, right? So so arguably, although again, I'm not suggesting the regulator has got the balance wrong, but arguably, over time, you get a kind of an accretion of costs that you needn't necessarily have, right? Um, the throwing money at it tendency is pretty simple. It's just to do with the fact that I think returns on R&D were great until about 20, the year 2000, because although R&D costs were going up, drug industry sales were growing faster or as fast, mm-hmm. right? So that just made people naturally price insensitive, I think. And I think the one that I'll talk a bit more about later is around this kind of misindustrialization. I think there were naive assumptions about the factors that drive efficiency, yeah, unit cost being one of them. And people didn't understand the trade-offs that they were making when they embraced some of those um, notionally high-tech um, approaches, right? Mm. Um, so, so I think those were the sort of original driving factors. Now, the, there has been a turnaround since 2010, as, as you said, but I think that's been driven by a number of things. I think it's been driven by, um, uh, the industry, I think has got better at understanding where the technology it has at its disposal is likely to work, right? Human genetics has helped there. So we have better ways of sort of slicing and dicing human disease. And if you can identify genetic uh, uh, or groups of groups of patients who are genetically homogeneous, you have a kind of homogeneous disease entity that is easier to model, right? 
And also, it's easier to get the right patients. It's easier to find the patients who match the thing that you're modeling, right? So, 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 so effectively, genetics is a tool that's kind of tied together greater confidence in the therapeutic mechanism, the ability to sort of test drugs against that therapeutic me- mechanism outside of people, and then finding the actual people who match the therapeutic mechanism that you've been testing in your models, right? And I think that's combined with arguably a sort of slightly more relaxed regulatory environment in the therapy areas where those approaches work well, many of which are related to rare diseases and cancer. So human genetics has been very useful in rare diseases and cancer. It's been less useful in a lot of common diseases, right? So, um, uh, 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 and also I think a whole lot's been helped by the drug industry's discovery of quite how much it can charge for rare disease drugs, Right. So there's been this conjunction of factors. There's been a sort of recognition that our technology works quite well for genetically simple diseases, um, that there is a sort of regulatory, uh, sort of in some ways, some of these diseases are, all, are more regulated, tractable from a regulatory perspective. And then also, actually, the economics of those therapy areas, the industries realized are better than they would have thought 20 or 30 years ago, right, with, with the sort of rise in cancer drug pricing and orphan and orphan drug pricing. So I think those are the things that led the turnaround. And, and we've got more drugs coming out of the pipe per billion dollars spent than we did in 2010. But the indications for which they're being approved are narrower, hmm. right? And also they're getting very, 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 very expensive. Yeah, maybe maybe it's really not the best productivity measure to measure it uh, in drugs approved per billion dollars then. I mean, you mentioned the better than the Beatles problem. Uh, it sounds to me that basically in the last uh, 70 years, the low-hanging fruits have been harvested and there is a solution on the market that works. So why should you improve something that works already on the market, uh, even when you throw more capital capital on that? The other thing that you mentioned that uh, sticks in my mind is that basically when you have uh, the low-hanging fruits on the market and they work well, then throwing more money on R&D leads to the situation that it drives scientists to more complex problems that are harder to tackle, that uh, are not easy to tackle, and that basically also have less less patience. So it's uh, this rare disease area, for example, that you mentioned, which automatically then means uh, that the investment must go up as a result. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. So, yeah, no, I think, I mean, in a sense, I think I agree with a lot of that summary, right? <laughs> And yeah. then we have the regulatory hurdles that uh, I think also probably the um, the interest to get really safe and effective drugs on the market uh, has gone up has gone up in society in the last two or three decades. So I I I think I 
I'm more reluctant to be critical of the regulators now, perhaps, than mm. I was when I wrote the 2010 paper, the 2012 paper. Um, and again, I don't pretend to be a regulatory expert. So my sort of, you know, my, you know, I look at this from an R&D productivity perspective, and I've had, I would say, it's sort of occasional real serious bits of work, but not large pieces of work where I've looked at regulation. So, for example, I did quite a serious piece of work back 2014-15, looking at the regulation of antimicrobials, right, which was a particular policy problem or has been a policy problem. Um, I, um, my view for what it's worth is, is that the regulator is pretty um, innovation-friendly in therapy areas that are where there is a sort of real serious um, lack of good therapeutic choices for patients, right? So I don't think anyone can look at the current sort of oncology landscape mm. and think that the regulatory has been too tough, right? right? I think people could argue that lots of the drugs being approved have actually relatively limited evidence of efficacy. Now, my view for what it's worth is that um, an awful lot of innovation actually happens once drugs are launched. So actually... It's a mistake to think that the innovation process ends with approval, that the users learn how to use drugs in their natural environment. And there are lots of drugs now sold that do things much better than when they were launched because the users have learned to deal with them. So, for example, there's lots of chemotherapy drugs where now the toxicities are much less severe than when they were launched because users have learned how to deal with it. Um, you know, dosing schedules are optimized. Uh, we we find old drugs have new uses. So, so I'm personally of the view that if drugs aren't dangerous, even if they're not wildly effective or apparently wildly effective, actually probably they should be approved because the, people find out how to use them over time and their use is optimized in the real world. Um, but again, I I I I I I I think certainly on my experience, I don't. I'd be reluctant to say that the regulator is sort of too um, strict. Uh, and But I think there's a sort of difficult sort of multi-factor optimization problem here that regulators are trying to do, right? They've got a whole bunch of things they have to think about. And uh, and, and the idea that you can keep everyone happy is, <laughs> particularly in a world that's as polarized <laughs> as it is, right, is, 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 is you're not going to keep everyone happy, right? To keep everyone happy, I think, is an art that nobody can can ever master in in life. The I mean, I think the the pandemic was an excellent example of how tough the work for regulators and politicians really is. Because on one hand, you have this tremendous fear on the market. Uh, this new pathogen, people are dying. Uh, People are afraid and you have to do something. And then you have two companies who are doing research that are doing research in that area who happen to be very quick into the clinics, which was really surprising to me. I never thought that it's uh, possible to align the entire industry towards a goal in a way that without giving up on efficacy and safety, uh, that we really can produce faster, do research faster, connect people faster, have enough capital available. And still, then you have to make the decision as a regulatory authority. Uh, okay, we have clinical trial data. It's probably not the best data, but it was, it is what is, was possible of doing. And then you can say, okay, we approve it. Uh, we go with the data set. Or we don't approve it and say, okay, let's uh, test it with two millions more, which uh, 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 lengthens the timeline. Um, to the, I mean, I think it would have been two years more. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's not an easy choice. It's not an easy choice uh, to go down that route. 
What I find interesting in one of, uh, I think you wrote the paper in 2015 and 16, where you discussed basically the predictive value of some models that are used in early stage development. So we have uh, discussed the regulatory hurdles, we have discussed the financial hurdles, uh, also the problems in clinic and decision-making in that. But what about the early stage science? Uh, what were your findings there? Okay, so so I'm going to tie this back, both the E-Room's law and the Better Than the Beatles problem, because I think mm. it, 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 certainly in the evolution of my thoughts about this, it's, it's very closely related, right? So one thing that struck me when I was doing the E-Room's law work, said, okay, we've got Outputs have got 100 times more expensive. Inputs have got thousands, millions, or in some cases, tens of billions of times cheaper mm. and better, right? What's the diagnosis? It was clear to me that any serious diagnosis, anything that you thought was a major causative factor had to be able to explain orders of magnitude of productivity change, right? Mm. So unless your causative factor explained orders of magnitude, don't even bother thinking about it because it's just not, it's, it can't be important relative to the magnitude of the effects we see. Mm. And um, I, in the dim and distant past, very long time ago, had to do some programming uh, of very simple search algorithms. And I shouldn't make this sound glamorous. It wasn't. It was really a, It was really people forcing me to learn how to program, not that I was doing anything clever. So I was programming dumb, simple beginner search algorithms. But I remember that the efficiency of search tasks, or rather the, the efficiency of search algorithms could be very sensitive to the type of search task that you were performing. Mm. Right. So I thought, could I produce a simple quantitative representation of R&D as a search process and then try and understand the parameters to which search efficiency is effective. So, so I produced a, a quantitative model that is, I would say, actually rather, is rather simple and it, and it reflects what most people sort of, although they don't articulate it this way, it reflects a kind of common sense view of drug R&D. And, and the model works like this. You say, okay, there's a universe of therapeutic candidates and from that universe, we have to select something that we think is going to work in people. And the, the universe of therapeutic candidates, it could be drug targets. It could be compounds against the drug target, right? Mm. Uh, so the, the general thinking is quite sort of generalizable. But let's suppose we, you know, we, we know the target. The universe is a set of compounds that we might test against that target. Well, what do we do in the R&D process? Well, in the R&D process, we have a bunch of measures that we apply to those therapeutic candidates, and we then effectively slice the universe of therapeutic candidates to, at, at, at successive steps to try and identify the ones that are most likely to work in people. So there's a sort of implicit assumption there for anyone doing R&D that the, that the measures they're using somehow correlate with clinical utility in people. Right, because if you didn't think your measure, whether it's a binding affinity measure or a tox measure or a PKPD measure, if you didn't think that was correlated with clinical utility in people, you wouldn't bother. You wouldn't bother mm -hmm. making it. Right. Mm -hmm. So you can think about representing this universe of therapeutic candidates, which which may be the candidates that exist in a high throughput screening uh, collection, or it may be the candidates we could, in principle, synthesize. You can think about representing them in a measurement space, right, where you've got, you know, human clinical utility on one axis, you've got mm -hmm. some, you know, in vitro scores on another axis, maybe in vivo scores on another axis. And then you can start slicing that space to see the parameters to which your ability to predict, to identify things that will work in people um, are sensitive. 
But it turns out if you do that, uh, at least for the sort of sets of parameters that are relevant to early stage drug discovery, uh, up until kind of preclinical, where the average candidate is quite unlikely to work, right? It turns out that the, the parameter that really dominates is the degree to which your model, and I'll call it a decision tool, the degree to which the thing on which you're basing your decision, the degree to which its score correlates with human clinical utility across a set of therapeutic candidates, right? So, so it, and you can operationalize that as the correlation coefficient that would exist if you had infinite money and no ethics and could take all of the candidates and test them all in people, right? Mm. right. It's the correlation between your, your in vitro score and the, right? So, so it turns out that actually your ability to identify good candidates is very, very sensitive to that correlation coefficient. And it's actually surprisingly insensitive often to throughput. So for, for much of the sort of relevant search space, and there's a concrete example I may talk about later, changing the correlation coefficient between your model and the human outcome of interest by 0.1, let's say a correlation coefficient going from 0.6 to 0.7, is more important than changing the throughput by a factor of 10 or even 100. Right. So this then relates to the, back, back to the Beatles problem. So a hypothesis I have that is both consistent with the decision theoretic treatment and I think is consistent with history is that, you know, circa 1950, we had a universe screening and disease models. And of course, we get new screening and disease models over time as well. But we have a kind of universe of screening and disease models. And some of them accurately predict human clinical utility and some of them don't. Mm -hmm. right? And if you throw R&D resource at those models over time, what happens is that the models that accurately identify clinical, clinically useful compounds produce lots of successful drugs. And those successful drugs become the Beatles, effectively. And what that means is that the models that are most predictive render themselves commercially redundant. Mm -hmm. Right? We don't need uh, models for antihypertensives very much these days. We don't need models for statins these days. We don't need models for, well, commercially, actually, we, you know, socially we may need them, but commercially there's not a huge demand for anti-infective models. And that's because the models are good. They've given us a bunch of good drugs. Right? And what we're left with is we're left with the models that don't ac don't accurately identify drugs that work, and those are things like models for advanced solid cancers, models for Alzheimer's. And ironically, we keep using those models precisely because they don't work, <laughs> and they never render themselves redundant. So, so the sort of the big idea is that quality beats quantity. A certain amount of quantity is necessary, right? But but in early drug discovery. Predictive validity, the degree to which your model output correlates with human clinical utility is critically important. And over time, uh, one has exhausted the most predictive models, right? And that, again, that sort of links this kind of model validity thinking to sort of E-Room's law and the best and Beatles problem. That's very interesting. I mean, the business people like I have uh, the tendency to oversimplify and uh, 
to find ways to 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 come to the big idea that you mentioned. So when you understand you're right, is that the solution to the productivity problem in the industry is not uh, throwing more uh, candidates into the process, so increasing the quantity of the number. It's more focusing on the quality of the predictive models that we use. The quality of the decision tools, yeah. And, yeah. and predictive models are only part of that, right? So, you know, also things like portfolio management, you know, also the processes. So, for example, you can have great predictive, you can have great models, but if your management processes are political and biased, right, or you don't listen to the scientists who understand the models, you just throw away a lot of the information that might be available for your decisions, right? So there's sort of two components. There's a kind of technical component, and then there's a sort of managerial component of piping better. There's a managerial component as well. Yeah, but the questions that I can solve in my mind is, I mean, you brought up Alzheimer. I think it's a very good example. I think Alzheimer, uh, when we look at the biology, is very complex. It's a complex disease, and uh, I think some people would even argue, is it one disease or is it several diseases at the same time that are just subsumized uh, under one term? And on the other hand, you mentioned when I understood you right that the the models that we use for Alzheimer in the drug development space are probably not maybe not the best ones yet. But how how can we improve that? Do you have some ideas um, how the scientists? can come up with better models when it's so complex to understand the problem yes. in the first place. So I I mean I sort of came across those sort of decision theoretic and sort of historical ideas around 2016, right? 2015, 2016. And I realized that um they most people in the drug industry, if I explained it to them, would say, yeah, that's very interesting, but what do I do? Right. <laughs> So uh, that's that's what I've spent a lot of the time since 2016 trying to work on. Uh, and um, I think the and I I wrote a paper last which came out last year, which was an attempt to sort of synthesize what I've learned about what do we do, and that's and that's really come from doing a bunch of consulting work to sort of. Um, in the sort of biopharma industry, right? So people are actually grappling with these problems for real. Um, it's come from talking just with a lot of people. And it's also come from understanding better the sort of, a lot of the practical literature around measurement and evaluation. Uh, and um, and I would say there's a, there's a sort of number of steps in the process, right? The first step is you just need to convince people of the quantitative and historical result, right? You need to convince people that actually um, the idea that predictive validity can be very, is is more important than they think it is, right? So this is a slightly this is a slightly hard sell. So no one working in the drug industry thinks, right? I'm going to do a study and I'm going to use some really bad models, right? So everyone knows that good models are better, but the surprising result is the quantitative power. It's that. Models that are a little bit better can be can give you the same productivity edge as doing ten or a hundred times more work, right? Um, and so that impressing on people the quantitative result matters, right? The next step is to say, well, okay, if model validity is really important. How do I think about measuring it, or how do I evaluate it? 
So you gave the example of Alzheimer's. I, I, I know little about Alzheimer's. It's not one of the conditions about which I, I, I claim to know a lot. So there's some, probably some other therapy areas where I can give better examples. But just, just pick another one, then it was just something that popped up in my mind where I get the um, feeling that it's complex and uh, it's hard to tackle. Um, Actually, I, I think I know enough about Alzheimer's actually to illustrate it, right? So, but, I, but, I, but my illustration maybe is wrong in detail. Mm. Um, so, there's a very good point you make, which is okay. We don't think Alzheimer's models are good, right? Well, okay. If you were to if you were about to deploy millions of dollars on an Alzheimer's discovery pr program, right, you would want to know more than are Alzheimer's models good. Right, mm -hmm. you would want a, a operational, a working operational definition of what good looks like. So, one very practical thing you do is you produce, or you can produce, what you might call a target model profile. Right. So, what would a good Alzheimer's model look like? Right. And there are some there are tools available to help you do that, and most people don't use them. Right. So, developing a target model profile has a number of steps. The first step is you articulate the characteristics of the human pathology that you think it is important to reflect in your models, mm -hmm. right? So this requires a very detailed description of Alzheimer's, right? So you raised the point that Alzheimer's may not be one disease, right? Well, if Alzheimer's is several different distinct diseases, you would need several, you know, you would reflect this in your target model profile. Well, actually, there's not just one disease here, there are several diseases. So or, or to put it another way, I think the way models are generated is different from the way we do a lot of science. And, and I'm going to be slightly unfair here, but a lot of animal models are effectively retrospectively justified. So people will make some genetic changes to a mouse or a rat. They will notice that, that the rat or mouse then exhibits a few of the features of the human pathology. Right. And then they will assert that that animal is a model of Alzheimer's. Right. If you wanted to do it properly, what you would do is you would specify what a good model of Alzheimer's looks like. You would come up with a clever checklist that would cover a number of domains, mm. like to what extent does, you know, what are the main features of the human pathophysiology you want to recapitulate? Right. What are the tests and endpoints that we can apply in people that we should, that should be applied in the model? Mm -hmm. uh, is the model what is the statistical and experimental hygiene right so are, is our model biased uh, uh, how big are the error bars right and and then there's another thing you need to think about with models which is concept which is very common but not in drug discovery is common in other fields of science which is what you might call models domains of validity right so so in most fields of science people will know that this model can predict some things but not others Right. So, you know, Newtonian mechanics is great for predicting some things. Right. It's good for predicting the orbits of planets. It's not good for predicting the motion of electrons around an atom. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to use it for that. Mm. But you've got quite a clear understanding of the domains within which this model is predictive and which it isn't. Right. So one of the things we advocate is you look at the sort of biological recapitulation. You look at the test and endpoints. You look at the statistical and experimental hygiene of your model, and then what you do is you then try and assess its domains of validity, um, i.e., what features of Alzheimer's 
treatment would we expect our model to predict? And you might say, well, in this particular subpopulation of patients, it might predict X, Y, and Z. But in that subpopulation of patients, it's not really going to predict anything, mm -hmm. right? And 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 um, so, and and again, I think the, the Alzheimer's question you raise also raises another important point, which is most people don't have a good language to talk about these things. So if you get a psychopharmacologist, pain biologist, cancer biologist, and an Alzheimer's person in a room, they don't use the same language to talk about whether models are good or bad. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you've got a portfolio management committee, which is composed of those people, and someone comes in with a model and they say, well, how good is this model? It's pretty good. You know, they, they will have completely different views about what that means. Right. So, so another practical aspect is, you know, you need to, people understand it's important. Then they need a lingua franca. They need a, they need a language that they can talk about the same sort of concepts. Because if, if, if you don't have a lingua franca within a company, it's quite hard to manage these things. Right. So it's important. Here's a language. Here's a set of tools you can use to assess model validity. And then the other thing that we've done a lot of work on is frameworks for tying evaluation of models onto financial value, right? So, so, so how much is it worth to have a model that performs better rather than a model that performs worse? That's a good question. That's a good question. I was just, uh, it makes me think while I was listening. So the, the, the usual uh, business management and economic uh, approach is when you have a problem, gather people, throw money at them and give them enough input. So when I understand your explanation, right, uh, it doesn't help in the pharma industry because at the end of the day, it makes people pursuing probably the wrong targets, the wrong goals. And when you understand you right, your recommendation leads more towards the way to ask the question, do we understand the problem well enough yet to start solving it? So spending much more time on defining the problem and looking at the validity of the models that people use to tackle the problem before starting actually executing. So it, it sounds to me like uh, we are very quick as an industry to jump on problems and try solving the problem uh, at the point in time when we first should sit back, relax, and think about the definition of the problem in the first place. Would that be a summary that uh, we could use? Yes. Yeah, I think so. I think, I think, yeah. and in the work I've done, it's very interesting. The first step in this is very, it's not always, but it's very often mm. defining the clinical state that you want to model, right? Because until you define, yeah, effectively defining, def yeah, defining what a good model looks like, because mm. until you've done that, you, you, you've got very little, you know, you, you, um, Yeah, you you don't know whether the tools that you've got at your disposal are likely to give you the right decisions, right? Mm -hmm. That's a very interesting. That's a very interesting uh, interplay of forces. Then, because on one hand there is society, um, when we can identify a problem the first time, society then understands. Okay, there is a disease, and this is something that we have the potential to tackle. And society then, as a whole, starts pressuring politicians to come up with a solution. And the only thing that uh, politicians can do then is inputting resources, basically. This is the only tool that they have. So they can 
uh, it's like the, what what the Fed and Biden administration is doing currently. They can basically print money and give them hand over the money to scientists, and with the money, with the capital, then comes the expectation to have the problem solved in due time. And when we think about politics, I think we think in uh, four to five years timeframes. And when we want to do it properly, from what your research says, is that the majority of this four to five years basically should be spent in thinking about the problem in the first place, which is not the output measure that is generally accepted in economics. Well, well, I actually don't think it's four to five years thinking about the problem, actually. I think in many cases, it's much less. Mm. And I think in many cases, one overestimates the amount to which the problem has been thought of at all. Mm. Right. So I'll qualify that by saying, you know, I interact with quite a lot of drug industry folks and in many cases, or, or rather, the failure point doesn't always occur, right? So some people do a great job, right? And I, and I talk about where I think a great job is done if you want. But actually, there's there's a whole bunch of different failure modes where a good job isn't done. Mm-hmm. So one area where I've done a little bit of work is ischemic stroke, which has mm-hmm. been a an R&D nightmare, right? So lots of drugs in ischemic stroke have worked, have apparently worked in animals and then failed to work in people for a whole bunch of reasons, some of which talk about in the, in, in the most recent paper. Um, but I don't for one moment think that the work I've done means I know more about stroke models than lots of people working in the drug industry, because I've met lots of those people working in the drug industry who know far more about stroke models than I ever will. But to give you an anecdote, you know, I was talking about model evaluation to a guy, sort of senior scientist in the drug industry, done a lot of work on stroke. And he said, um, yeah, but I know all that. I know which of the models are good and which are bad and stuff like that. And he goes, but, but the problem is the decisions are effectively political, mm. right? Now, there, I think, the work that we've been trying to do on sort of formalizing this sort of decision quality-based view and tying it to the economics it's not going to help that guy um, evaluate models, but it might help that guy explain his evaluation to his portfolio manager or his senior management team and allow and make it easier for them to do the right thing, right? So that's that's sort of one level of failure. It's not tech. And I think in much of the drug industry, the, tech, the, the depth of technical knowledge is superb, right? They know more about these problems than anyone else. Um, but in other places, actually, people simply have chosen models for reasons to do with tradition, to do with availability, uh, because it's what everyone else is doing. And actually, they haven't, you know, um, uh, you know, there hasn't been much intellectual effort uh, assigned to the model choice. You just kind of use what's available. Right, so it's a it's a very sort of heterogeneous picture, and then you, and then you've got other companies, and again I use Vertex as an example. I'm sure they're not, they're not the only people doing it, but I think they're just a bit more public about their R and D strategy, where um, they effectively they they sort of use different language to me, but effectively they work very hard to try and identify the R and D problems where the model systems are likely to give you a true result even if that makes other things more difficult, right? So, effectively, yeah, so they focus on modelable diseases. Typically, 
a lot of rare human genetic diseases, but they say, look, we can get patient-derived tissue. And we really want to focus on things where we think that what we see in the lab is going to translate very, very directly into patients. And that means they don't work on a bunch of diseases, right? So they won't, they're not going to be working on Alzheimer's because they look at conditions like that and they say, well, actually, we think the decision tools in that therapy area are mean that actually it's going to be difficult, right? And we may not generate good returns. There's a very important question that you raised. You mentioned the vertex pharmaceuticals case. And um, I think to summarize it, what you say is basically a lack of attention towards model quality in R&D productivity. Um, do you have further examples where you think that the job, besides the vertex example, or maybe we dig deeper into the vertex example, where scientists do a great job in working first on defining the problem and then executing. And can you also give an example where basically this uh, lack of attention towards model quality has actually really hindered R&D productivity? To just give more... Bring more so, so I'll give you I'll give you some examples of hindrance because again I, I've sort of you know I've, I've collected a few over the years and there's some really nice ones, uh, and again these and I'll use these also to illustrate the sort of dimensions on which I think models should be evaluated. And again, I'm I'm not the first person to advocate this, right? There's there's and again if you look at our 2022 paper, there's a sort of you know I. I Lots of people have worked on this problem before, right? Mm. But again, I, I don't think it's been sort of packaged in a in a sort of digestible in in in, in, a, in an easily digestible way. But um, one of my favourite examples is um, ischemic stroke, right? So this, uh, uh, and I'm sure most of anyone listening to this will know that ischemic stroke is caused when you get an occlusion, typically a blood clot in a blood vessel in the brain. Um, you know, you then get, you know, an interrupted blood supply, brain tissue dies, et cetera, et cetera. And this is a therapy area where um, there's been spectacular translational failure, right? So lots and lots and lots of things have worked in animal models of stroke and have then not worked in people. And there's, there's really, only, as far as I'm aware, there's really only two classes of drug that work in people, and neither of them are spectacularly successful. Uh, aspirin, I think, has been shown to have some effect, and also some clot blood-busting drugs have been shown to have some effect. Um, and if you think about it, ischemic stroke, it's not like Alzheimer's, or, or you wouldn't think it is. It's not some horribly complicated multifactorial thing that's lots of different diseases, right? The, the, the cause is fairly obvious. It's caused by a blockage in a cerebral blood, blood vessel. And one would imagine that blocking the cerebral blood vessel in an animal might recapitulate some of the biology of blocking a cerebral blood vessel in a, in a person, right? So the failure of translation in stroke is a bit more of a puzzle. And there's a whole bunch of reasons um, why translation was very difficult in stroke. But there is one example, which I think is a lovely example of how not to do things. And this is an example of a drug called Terilazad, so Terilazad was a drug that I think was successful in maybe 19 or 20 animal studies. So the positive results in 19 or 20 animal studies, giving this drug after ischemic stroke, uh, it then went into human trials where it did absolutely nothing. And coming back to my, you evaluate models against the target model profile, right? So what does the human clinical state look like? Well, in the case of Terilazad, 
when people went back to try and understand the failure, they looked at the animal studies and they found that the median delay between inducing the ischemic stroke in the animals and giving the drug was 10 minutes, right? In human stroke trials at the time, it's a bit quicker now, the median delay between a human having a stroke and them getting the drug is five hours, right? So in this case, even if you'd recapitulated the pathophysiology, even if your animals were having a stroke that was just like human stroke, fact that in, in your mo animal models, you wait 10 minutes, and in the human, you wait five hours, that massively decorrelates mm. the results for, of the animal models from the human. And it could well be that if you gave a human a drug 10 minutes after they had a stroke, it would work, right? But so, so there's the interesting example where tests and endpoints were a big, big problem. People didn't reflect the human clinical state in the model. Um, Another example is antimicrobials. And that's an interesting example because we went from an R&D process that worked to an R&D process that didn't work. And then we've gone back to an R&D process that works, at least from a discovery perspective. So the first antimicrobial, or no, the second useful antimicrobial drug was a drug called sulfonilamide, mm -hmm. sold as Prontosil, which was discovered by Bayer in Germany around 1930 by a guy called Gerhard Domak. And at the time, we didn't have the large medicinal chemistry collections we have today. Um, Domak tested a couple of hundred compounds, which were dye-stuffed derivatives, and he found, a, he found sulfonilamide from a screen of a couple of hundred compounds. Now, fast forward to 1995 to 2005, uh, a bunch of big pharma companies, Glaxo have been the most vocal. They sort of wrote up their experience, but other companies as well, uh, went on broad-spectrum antibiotic discovery missions, and they decided to throw their new technology at um, broad-spectrum antibiotic discovery. So they did a very clever thing. They sequenced the genomes of, of a bunch of pathogens. Pathogens have quite small genomes, so it was an early exercise in genomics. They found genes that were essential for the survival of a wide range of pathogenic species, but which didn't have close homologs in people, right? Because those would be the ideal candidates for broad-spectrum antibiotic targets, right? And then across the industry, over 100 high-throughput screening campaigns were tested, testing well over 10 to the 7 compounds in aggregate against those rationally identified drug targets. And the entire drug industry found not one compound that was worth putting into clinical trials, right? So how does a guy in 1930, 1930 testing 200 compounds find something useful, right? But the global drug industry testing well over 10 to the 7 compounds against 100 targets um, 70 years later not find anything useful? Well, if you go back to the decision theoretic maths that I was alluding to, this idea that predictive validity is important, how much does your assay correlate with the human outcome of interest? Domac was screening his compounds in mice with sepsis, right? So he had a live whole animal screen. He had some other screens as well, but there was, mm. but, but there was an important whole animal component in screening his compounds. In 1995 to 2000, the industry had moved wholesale to in vitro screening, high throughput screening. So you would express the gene products bacterial gene products, uh, turn them into proteins, put them in little dishes, and effectively look at binding affinities, squirting the um, compounds in the high-throughput screening collections against those targets. Now, the decision-theoretic math says 
if domax mice correlate with a human outcome of interest at 0.8 and high throughputs in vitro screens correlate with the human outcome of interest at the 0.2 level, you would expect the best one out of 200 compounds tested in the mice to perform better in people than the best one out of 10 to the 7 compounds tested in vitro, right? Uh, and, and we now know why the in vitro screen effectively decorrelates the results from human clinical outcome of interest, right? So one is high throughput screening collections have lots of compounds that don't get into bacteria, right? So you, you've, you've effectively enriched or else have pumped out of bacteria. So you've enriched your, you've effectively decorrelated your assay that way. And then secondly, the genes that are essential for bacterial survival in vitro are not the same as the genes that are essential for bacterial survival and bacteria doing well in vivo, right? So that decorrelates the targets, right, from the targets that are important. So, so there's a really good example where the industrialization of the process inadvertently decorrelated the results of the process from the human outcome of interest, and you made it less productive despite the fact that you had huge gains in brute force efficiency. And since then, you know, not surprisingly, you know, there's lots of very clever people doing antimicrobial discovery. People have realized that. And people have gone back to um, phenotypic screens, uh, at least as a starting point, right? Because they realize that the results are likely to be more valid. Right? So those are two examples. The ischemic stroke example, where effectively tests and endpoints were wrong, right? And the Antimicrobial example were effectively the biological, re you lost the biological recapitulation by industrializing the process. That's interesting. That's interesting. The question that pops up in my mind is in your opinion, um, when I look on the value chain in the pharma industry, so simplified, simplified version, uh, I have the scientists, I have the research institutions uh, who are doing basic science. Then in between, I have companies, uh, which nowadays you mostly are small biotech companies, which are highly focused project teams um, that get venture capital, public funding to move scientific ideas to uh, just oversimplify it, um, to move basic ideas into products. And the cutoff point, in my opinion, is uh, Somewhere I can't really tie it down in science. It's more a fluid process. Um, so it's, uh, I think, translational research. Uh, very often, it's, uh, there is no hard cutoff point. So people work together. Then you have a company, you license into the company. Teams work together. And somewhere in preclinics, the scientists phase out. And we are clearly in the development teams area, more or less. Let's say 90%, 10%. Uh, compared to 100% science, then you bring the development teams in. And uh, at the end of preclinics, probably we have 90% development and 10% scientific teams in my world. Uh, then we are in clinics. And I think the cutoff point towards the pharma industry also oversimplified is uh, clinical phase two. Where with uh, efficacy results, safety results, pharma is happy to license, bring it to the market. Um, from what you say now, what I understand is that the complexity of the process is mostly driven by industrialization in the predictive model. So we put a lot of models in, pressure scientists and development teams to move forward, while we should spend more time on defining targets, defining models, defining the processes before we start moving forward. Now, when I look at my picture of the value chain of the pharma industry, where in this process do you see the amendments that you that your work suggests? That are no, necessary? I, 
Yeah. So I think I think the, the sort of the critical thing is to get. I think if 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 incentives aren't right, not much happens. Mm. Right. So my view is that the sort of the so I would say the sort of primary consumers of the sort of the, the stuff I'm talking about at the moment, I, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll list them. I think an obvious set of primary consumers are venture capital firms, right? Um, in that, if I was you know still involved in deploying R and D capital, knowing what I now know, mm. I would have very rigorous processes around model evaluation, right? And you know, if people were pitching to me, I would require them to, you know, before they come and pitch, look, here's here's how you should here's how I would like you to think about models. And if you're serious about getting investment, here's a bunch of questions you're gonna to have to answer. Right. And um and I think arguably you know, the, the, the internal farmer equivalent is the kind of, you know, is the sort of the sort of portfolio management resource allocation process, right? So you need to tie resource allocation to these questions around um, model validity um, in a sort of more rigorous and formal way. Um, and then in parallel, you need to give the scientists and the project teams the training and the tools necessary to start doing you know, to start doing evaluations. For what it's worth, and, you know, and this is not a door I've pushed on, I've had some discussions, but I haven't really pushed on this door. My view is, you know, the sort of the biomedical funding agencies, whether, philan whether philanthropic or public sector, should also um, require these sorts of arguments to be made when funding projects that are likely to involve, you know, therapeutic development and models. And, and at the moment, very often they just don't. It's not that they don't do it very well. Very often they don't do it at all, right? So I've certainly got personal experience of, of, of reviewing grant applications. Again, not a huge amount, but, but some grant applications in the UK for antimicrobial um, money from the UK's equivalent to the NIH, an app called the MRC, where, at least as far as I recall, you know, people could try and make the case for you know getting money to discover new anti bacterials in disease X without really having to give any justification at all about why the model systems that they can use in disease X are likely to give them the right answer. Right? So ironically, what I now think is the single most important thing that should have been explained in the grant application wasn't in the grant application, right? <laughs> There's lots of other stuff in there, but that that particular factor was not. So, so I think we're often starting from quite a low base, but I think I think the incentives need to be there, and that's people allocating capital need to put effectively more formal rigor around um, the evaluation of the decision tools that are going to be used in R&D projects. Yeah, it's, it's um, in an interesting way. I mean, the economic model is uh, quite simple of a company. You input something and you need an output at the end of the day. Uh, I think um, Tesla, for example, I mean, Elon Musk is all over the media right now with Twitter, with his, with his acquisition of Twitter. Um, when Elon Musk promises to deliver a self-driving car at the end of the day, the success measure is, uh, have we a self-driving car or not? And it's measured against the capital we put in. When there is no self-driving car on the market after trillions of uh, dollars were invested, it's a failure. 
when I translate this, this simple simplified economic principle to the drug development space, uh, I think coming from the same point of view to say only the approved drugs are the measure of success uh, compared to the capital, maybe we make a mistake in the first place. So maybe we should um, increase the definition of success in drug R&T to also the failed drugs uh, should count into, into the success of the drug R&D process. Uh, I think at the end of the day, even when we increase the predictive predictive validity of decision tools, uh, we still will have a high number of uh, failed drugs. And you mentioned also that uh, the low-hanging fruit have been harvested. So, I mean, in the 1930s or 1920s or 1940s or 1950s, um, a lot of problems were unsolved. A lot of uh, obvious problems were unsolved. Uh, you mentioned in the discussion diabetes, for example. Now we have solutions. And to improve what already solves 90% of the problem uh, is always very costly and very expensive. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Coaching Conversation 2024. This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligent strategies to help leaders drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast. So I think I think broadly I agree with you. I'll I'll make a few sort of I'll make a few comments, but I think I mean I think I think logically there's no particular reason why the sort of biopharma industry shouldn't be in some sort of gradual decline mm. because the better than the Beatles problem means that over time, you know, over time, more and more of the stuff we need is likely to be cheap and generic and constrain investment in the therapy areas, right? So I think I think that 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 seems to me true. And it may be in the long run that you know more capital shifts to other kinds of biomedical innovation. I don't I don't have any I don't have any um, real quibble with that argument. A few things about I do, however, have a sort of pet, uh, uh, sort of pedantic criticism of low-hanging fruit arguments, mm. which, although they may be true, they also sometimes tend to be tautological, right? So I've sometimes said that the low-hanging fruit, you know, so if the only tool you have for measuring the height of the fruit is the rate at which you're picking fruit, and you notice that the rate at which you're picking fruit is declining, mm. you will always blame the low-hanging fruit problem. But actually, it might be your ladders have got shorter, right? Or, <laughs> or you know, so, so, there's, so there's one, and, we, and I think we, the we history don't want to is interesting here. Today. <laughs> we don't want to climb well, higher the, today. Well, the history <laughs> is interesting here. I, well, but there's some interesting history here. I think... There's been a qualitative change in the way drug R&D is done. Mm. And lots of things that were discovered a long time ago wouldn't be easy today. Right? So, um, uh, uh, 
for example, you know, so, you know, so there's lots of drugs like sort of Paris, you know, there's lots of sort of very successful drugs that if you show them to a medicinal chemist today or you show them to a modern drug R&D program, they would never be discovered. Right, so paracetamol is an example. You know, it's kind of some ugly compounds, got lots of problems with it. And then you've got, you know, probably most antidepressants would never have been discovered using the methods available today. So, I, so I do think that one needs to have measures of difficulty that are not sim- that don't simply reflect whether or not something's already been discovered. Yeah, yeah, probably. So the big, big question at the end of our conversation, then for the last part. Uh, is the strategies to improve that? I think um, when we look, when we stay with your productivity models, there is a lot of discussion currently on the market about artificial intelligence. Yeah, which which role do you see? I mean, in in one podcast, I had a discussion um, where I thought it's superstitious, and uh, the colleague said, "No, maybe probably not." So, wouldn't it be nice to? can calculate uh, in a supercomputer the entire drug development process from uh, basic science up to approval so that we don't need animal models, that we don't need uh, human models, that just a computer comes up and solves all problems for us um, in an ideal world. Uh, what's the reality of artificial intelligence to improve drug productivity in terms of safety and efficacy? And what is superstitious stories? Okay. So I'm not going to be too quantitative here, but I would say I think AI is important. Its effect will be incremental and modest in the near term, mm. right? So, uh, and again, I want to say here, I, I, I don't want to pretend I know more about AI in drug R&D than I do, but also I, I want to make it, make it clear to people I'm not a complete Luddite, right? So I did spend a couple of years actually doing what today would probably be called AI-based drug discovery in around sort of 2012, 2013. Um, and I do have some sort of professional interests now in relation to sort of AI-based drug discovery companies. Um, and I and, and so I think that I think there are sort of real opportunities. But the the reason and, and I would also urge people to read, so if people are interested in this, sometimes you come across a paper that or papers that um appear brilliant, possibly because there are very articulate and clear. Uh, uh, writing of your own prejudices done in a better way than you could have done yourself, right? So, so, so there's two papers by a guy called Andreas Bender and uh, Cortez Siriano, which came out in 2020, which I think are an excellent summary of at least of how, if I knew more about the subject, I would represent it, right? It, mm-hmm. I.e., they play to my prejudices, uh, but, but, and 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 they really focused on sort of data issues. And the idea is that the application of AI to chemistry, sort of data constraints make the application of AI to chemistry much more likely or amenable or useful than the application of AI to biology, Mm. except perhaps within certain areas like sort of protein folding, right? And then I think that the second thing, which is I think one needs to be clear what one means when one talks about AI, right? So as AI has currently become fashionable again, lots of things call themselves AI, but many of those things are not that new, right? So if you think, let's say, say for example, uh, uh, the protein folding problem is a sort of classic case where advances in AI seem to have made you know, allow us to do computational prediction of protein folding a lot better than we could a few years ago. Well, that's probably true. 
Well, the question is, what's really driven that? Well, it's been driven by improvements in the algorithms, but also it's been driven by improvements in the data. Mm-hmm. So before we had X-ray crystallography, which actually told us what the crystal structure, what the, what the structures of proteins actually were, right? You couldn't really do, you couldn't really ever test whether your AI prediction algorithms gave you the right answer or not. So there's been a sort of co-evolution of data and models that allow us to do prediction. And if you look in the drug industry, the drug industry has had clever people doing things that look a bit like AI for a very long time. They didn't call it AI. They called it computational chemistry. They called it structural biology. Um, They called it... um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, molecular docking. They called it genomics, right? But it, 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 it's it, these sort of clever people doing sophisticated quantitative and computational methods is, is old. And the constraints, I think, are probably more data-related than algorithmic, mm-hmm. right? And the creation of data is expensive and takes a long time. And I'll give you a... Uh, but again, I would go and look at the Bender paper because I think that they are a sort of remarkably clear exposition of how both the data quality, quantity, and structure in biology is very, very different from many of the areas where um, AI has proven very successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll give you one nice example from a bit of work I've done recently, which is, you know, uh, around this, not AI, but this is around prediction of of uh, liver toxicity, right? So compared to predicting efficacy, predicting liver toxicity is from a data perspective, a relatively easy problem, right? Because, and I use the term relatively easy only compared to efficacy prediction, right? And and that's because lots of drugs have been into models and have been into people, right? And um, so you get these data sets where you have uh, uh, drugs where we know how toxic they are to people, and then we can put those same through drug, the same through the drugs through in vitro systems, or we could put them through computational systems, and try and predict and see whether our predictions are any good. But there's a real problem here in that the human truth data, even for something like liver tox, isn't very good, right? So. If, if you want to know how toxic is a drug to humans, which is the truth state that you're trying to predict, well, the best you can get is a kind of five-point ranking scale where you go from, you know, where, where you look at the regulatory and other sources and you say, well, okay, some of these drugs are a, a one. I can't remember whether one is the most toxic or a five is the most toxic. I think a one is the most toxic. You say some of these drugs are a one. These drugs are really toxic from a liver perspective. And then some drugs are a five, which means effectively, you know, the only way uh, they could hurt your liver is if someone drop, dropped a box of them on your liver, right? They're completely non-toxic. And, but then if you look at what, what the ones are, the ones are a completely heterogeneous bunch. So just because these things are very liver toxic doesn't mean they're the same. So some of them will be drugs that if anyone took 30 tablets, they would get hor- horrible liver damage, right? Some of them could be drugs where one in a thousand people have a genetic mutation that means in that, that one in a thousand people, the drug will be terribly toxic, but it'll be fine for everyone else. Or it could be that one out of 200 of the drugs cause a weird allergic reaction that damages the liver, right? So, and then actually you can only get this data for maybe a thousand drugs, probably less, right? So this is a very small data set. And actually it's really heterogeneous, poor data. So in a sense, the the characterization of the truth state 
is largely inadequate for sort of computational approaches. And I think that that's what you find when you look at a lot of biology, right? Mm-hmm. The we 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 don't have much data on the truth state. And when we do have the data, the data isn't characterized or structured in a terribly useful way. And I think that's that in my view is the is is the main constraint. So AI will continue to be very, very useful as computational and quantitative methods have been useful for the last 40 years, mm-hmm. right? It will get better in some particular places. So for example, you know, I, I understand that AI is really good for engineering around chemistry patents, right? So there's the particular places, it's, it, it, you know, chem, I think the chemistry side is great, but I don't think that is most often the rate limiting step in modern drug R&D. Yeah, ChatGPT, for example, is very good in writing. So the, the AI can do a lot. When I summarize what you said about artificial intelligence, so basically it's uh, the truth is more in the data than in the algorithms that we have. It's or the rate limiting step is, the, I think, on the biology side, the rate limiting, the, the, the limitation is around quality and quantity of the data. It's not around the algorithm. And if you think where AI has really transformed things, You've had to have the combination of algorithms and data, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, so um, that's why I think, yes, yeah, I think it's not the rate limiting step for large swathes of drug R and D, but I think it will be very helpful for certain things. Well, there's, there's another analogy that I think is useful in drug R and D, thinking about revolutions, right? Why revolutions are rare? <laughs> drug R and D is a bit like a hurdles race, right? And particular technologies may make you much better at getting between hurdles two and three mm-hmm. or between hurdles seven and eight, right? But the fact is they don't help with hurdles one, four, you know, six, ten. So, so that's why I think we don't see as many revolutions, right? It's, it's just a complicated multi-step process and individual pieces of the jigsaw have a relatively constrained productivity effect. Do you see, um, I mean, my uh, demand in the last 10 years or 15 years basically was uh, when I compared the capital side of drug development in Europe to the United States, I came to the conclusion, okay, we have great science. We have uh, a lot of uh, smart people working on solving problems. Um, when I look on the development side, uh, I see a scarcity of money in Europe. So still, I mean, it, it got better over the years, but still there is more capital on the market in the United States than in Europe. <laughs> Um, from what I get from our conversation now is that probably capital is also contributing to the problem, but not the main driver of the problem. How much, how much, uh, weight would you give the availability of capital in the drug development process that holds back on the productivity side? Yeah. So, I mean, I think here one thing should think about sort of relative versus absolute, right? So I think there's a, Well, I'll give you a rather sort of weak answer, right? But the true answer. I think I think the spread between capital availability in Europe and US is narrowing. Mm. Right. I think a lot of Americans have realized that Europe is what you might call underventured. Right. And uh, so actually you can get some better deals over here because historically less capitals flowed into ideas of equivalent quality. But it's also more complicated, I heard very often. <laughs> um but and there's another observation, which is I think biotech investing is clearly cyclical. And I've seen some quite convincing studies that suggest that some of that cyclicality is quality related, 
right? So when times are hard, on average, the stuff that gets funded is better than when times are easy and the cost of capital is zero, right? And this it has a sort of pro-cyclical effect or uh, uh, so that you get um, lots of stuff funded when capital is cheap and there's lots of money around. A lot of that stuff isn't very good. A lot of it then fails. It tends to push some people out of the market. It then gets harder to raise capital, which then pushes up the quality again, right? So, so at least I've read some people who've made quite a compelling case that some of the, some of these sort of investment cycles we've seen in early stage biotech are related to that kind of that sort of uh, uh, sort of pro-cyclical effect of the fact that when there's more capital, the average quality goes down. So, so, so that, that, that says straightforwardly then that actually probably there is a relationship between capital availability and quality. When more capital is available, available the average quality of what gets funded goes um, down. But it's interesting, it, being involved as I now am in very early stage biotech and raising money, it's also clear to me that you have a sort of knowledge networks that in some parts of the world make it easy to do things and in some parts of the world make it different to do things, right? So if, mm. if you're based on the West Coast of the US, you know, if you happen to have had your academic career in Stanford, then everyone you know will have started a biotech company, right? And that just makes it easier. That genuinely makes it easier to start a biotech company. Whereas if you're based in, you know, um, Bilbao or, uh, you know, lots of mid-sized European cities, that's simply not the case, right? So, 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 so I, again, I don't, I don't have a sort of neat answer, but I, I do think there is a sort of transatlantic difference. I do think local environment can make it much easier. Uh, but it's also clear, I think, when capital is freely available, the average quality goes down. That's two interesting points that I would make some would love to make some remarks. I mean, when I started in life science in 2006 here in Vienna, in Austria, uh, before I was a merger acquisition in public companies, so the response I got from my private environment was, are you crazy? Why are you throwing your life away and start in a company that doesn't produce any revenues? This companies bound to fail. So the main driving force in that company was Rotganova, who later on founded CRISPR Therapeutics, and uh, the reality turned out to be differently. But the social environment here in Austria, 15, 16, 17 years ago, was completely different than it is now. So now it's more generally wow. accepted to go into entrepreneurship. And having said that, uh, when I think back to my fundraising experiences, I always thought, when I talk to VCs, it's an easy sell to say, okay, look, uh, we have uh, preclinical models completed. We need $10 million, just ballpark figures, uh, to go into phase one. And in two years' time, we will have the results of the phase one. We will have the risk to the program, and either we stop it or we move forward. It's an easy sell. From what I learned from you now in this conversation, uh, I think the most important question is really, do we have the right models? Do we yeah, it's not exactly exactly. It's not. Do you have? Have you done preclinical? It's what preclinical have you done, and why? And is why is this going to predict what happens to people? But but do you think it's an easy sell to the venture world uh, as you perceive it right now? To say okay, we we need probably not ten million, but twelve million and two million are only located to question if we did do the right studies and if we okay. So so so, so, for, so for what it's worth, I think you know, I think we've done the decision theoretic maths right, and I think we've got the financial maths right. 
right? And if, and if we've got the maths right, then VCs that don't do this will eventually be outcompeted by VCs that do. Now, it may be a very slow, low, low maybe a very slow process, right? But uh, you know, if you fundamentally, if you, know, if you don't do enough work on the things that are actually the most important things or, or some of the very important things driving investment returns, you're not going to generate good returns in the long run. So I'm not, I'm not expecting anything overnight. Uh, but um, I, you know, we published this much more sort of practical kind of how-to guide late last year, came out in October last year in, in Nature Reviews Drug Discovery. It's quite interesting. A lot of the incoming interest we've been getting have been from the invest investment side, right? It's quite interesting. So I would say uh, uh, people deploying capital have been more interested in this than sort of incumbents. So the people who've been really interested in it are people deploying capital, right? And then also people who think they've got novel drug discovery technologies mm. that the market is undervaluing. They're also very interested in these in the, the work because their view is, you know, we, we could bring lots of value, but at the moment we can't evaluate our technology in a way that we can explain to customers. And then the customers, we need to educate them because they can't tell that our technology is better than other people. And if they can't tell that our technology is better than other people, they're not going to pay more for it. Right. So it's quite interesting that the that the sort of interest has come from the sort of investment side and the sort of producer side, and actually less less from the or you know, I've I've had less incoming from the sort of from the sort of uh, uh big pharma side. Really, less. I also thought Big Pharma uh, should have an interest in that. It's really, it's more interest from the venture world. Well, this is just incoming. This is just people emailing me or calling me. Right. Yeah. 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 That's great. So basically, also, I mean, so the investment world has an increased awareness of the findings in your studies, which means probably in future there will be more emphasis on uh, questioning the research in the first place if it hits the right target. Yeah, and 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 again, some of the work I'm going to be starting doing fairly soon is to try and practically sort of implement this in, in certain sorts of innovation systems, right? So it's actually trying to systematize some of this so that the scientific producers and the scientific funders in that ecosystem have a common understanding of the sorts of things that are important and need to be explained about the decision tools that are being used, right? So people don't ask for funding if they have provided no information about the basis of decision tools, right? And 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 it's, it's trying to sort of generate this sort of lingua franca, a common set of tools, common set of standards people can use when trying to understand the the the, the likely predictive power of the models. So that means also then, when we think about models, I mean, this is also a call to action then for policymakers, in my opinion. Um, there's a lot of grant funding um, yeah. into the market early stage, but from... I didn't do any statistics and I didn't read any papers on that, but it's just from 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 my experience in the last 70 years, I always had the feeling that there is a lot of funding going towards uh, development approaches. Let's call it that way. Uh, put compound XYZ into animal models XYZ without questioning the models, if this is really yeah. the right models. Yeah. So would you also see a call to action for policymakers? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and you know, I, I, I that that in terms of my sort of my personal action, I've done less, right? But the obvious, but you know, the biomedical funding agencies, whether philanthropic or public sector, right? In a sense, if you're funding therapeutics, then doing it without a very very clear focus on the models, particularly in therapy areas that prove difficult, right? Seems to me, you know, irresponsible, um, and. 
and I think there's also another thing which we haven't touched on, which is the I think the the economics of model development are not great for or, or sometimes not great for the private sector. So um, yeah, to give you a caricature of this, I you know I've, I was talking to these sorts of ideas a while ago now with a sort of well very well funded U.S. biotech firm who have got a whole bunch of really cool novel chemistry technologies, right? And are going after oncology, where, of course, we know the models are terrible. And uh, so I said, well, you know, would you think about deploying any capital to try and improve the models? And they, they said, well, no, we know the models are terrible, but actually um, you can't make any money. You know, if, if you develop a better model, which says mechanism X is important in disease Y, mm. The minute you get positive phase one, you know, or two A data that shows that mechanism X is useful in disease Y, everyone else then knows that mechanism X works, and they don't have to invest in the model. So, so models have this, a certain property which which economists call a kind of a common goods property. It's hard to appropriate, or it can be hard to appropriate the economic value from them. Novel chemistry, on the other hand, is eminently patentable, even if it doesn't turn out to be very useful in the end. <laughs> Right. So you've got this a weird situation where the private sector incentives tend to focus people on producing novel chemistry, which they're quite happy to test in models that everyone working in the industry knows are bad. Right. And that's a better private sector business model than investing to improve the quality of the models. Right. So again, and, and that that I think is also something that sort of either industry consortia or or or, or public sector agencies need to think about. No, I couldn't agree more. I think the the just the basic principle of the private sector to have it's product based. Everything is product based. Yeah. You need a product at the end of the day. Yeah. And now, now some models can be productized, but I think a lot can't. Rather, a lot is it, the is value it, it leaks even if you productize them. Is this really possible? I mean, scientists need to publish papers, so every model has a right has a huge chance chance to end up in a paper. Okay, from, so. so Yeah, so so the models I'm, I mean about productizing. So, for example, you know, I've done some work with some organ-on-chip companies, mm. right? So, microphysiological systems; those things can be, to, you know, those those things can effectively be made into products. But you're right; a lot can't. Yeah, it's interesting. So, it's uh, policymakers. It's definitely something that would not move very much the investors, the investment world. To accept these areas that you say some, but the majority, I don't think. Yeah, so it's an investment. It affects your problem choice, right? So we won't work on diseases A, B, and C just because we think the model's too bad, right? Or it affects your uh, due diligence process, right? So, okay, we think that models may be fine in diseases X, Y, but we need to show that you've done a good job in diseases X, mm -hmm. Y. Um, another thing in the private sector, it may trigger investments. So, for example, there's been some interesting human experimental medicine advances in certain psychiatric conditions, in my mm -hmm. view, right? So that might then make certain therapy areas investable. So you have an investment strategy where you look for improvements in models in a given therapy area. And then at that point, you start to deploy capital, right? So that's that's the sort of thing you could do. Um, uh, but I think in terms of just investing to make better screening disease models, a lot of that is tricky It's tricky to convince the private sector they can appropriate enough of the value. I have never looked at uh, the industry from your perspective. Uh, it's really great to hear 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 this. What uh, so since I never looked in this direction before, uh, I have uh, no idea how the situation is with grant funding agencies. 
do you, from, from your expertise after more than 10 years of research in that area, uh, how do you describe the situation, the problem awareness in the grant funding sector? Um, is there an awareness for these dynamics that you describe, uh, better models, better output? Um, it's, it makes sense to invest in that area, or do you see that there is a lot of possibility to improve still in that sector? So I think there is some recognition, right? But I think it's it's framed in a slightly different way. So so people can sort of talk about similar things in different ways. So for example, um, I think a lot of the there's a lot I'd say a lot of the sort of biobanking sort of linking biology. So, so there's been, been a big push, for example, a lot of it publicly funded. You know, it's it's, it's a big deal in the UK where you know, sort of public biobanks, where it's kind of done, I think they use a different language. So they sort of say human is better than animal or sort of human is best, right? Mm. Which isn't always the case because actually an in vitro human model might be much worse than an in vivo animal model. But there's this kind of notion that human is best because it's going to somehow be more predictive, which will sometimes be true, but sometimes won't, right? But it, it often will be true. <laughs> so I think you've had big support for things like that. And I think sort of the sort of genomics is in some way related to model quality. But I don't think it's been done with the overt. Um, and then there's, there's also lots and lots of efforts around sort of assay quality and sort of initiatives around sort of reproducibility. But those, I think, are quite interesting. And they're somewhat limited in that they have a slightly different scope. So... They um, they address statistical and experimental hygiene, but they don't address the question as to whether your model is actually recapitulating the right biology or whether your tests and endpoints are actually relevant for human disease. They take and then and then you've also got sort of big initiatives, certainly in the UK and I think in other parts of Europe, to reduce the use of animals in um, R and D, which are sort of touch on some of these validity issues but again i think they've got a different objective which again is not around ultimate sort of truth and predictivity it's more around ethics. you know let's retire this technology for ethical reasons so so in my view there's a few things that sort of that touch on it but there's nothing sort of or there's not much i'm aware of that is sort of directly analogous now when i mean here in austria so when i run through the fundraising process here in austria it usually works that way that a scientist says, okay, look, I have a target. It's an um, underserved area for whatever reason. And I have a compound to just simplify it and target compound. Uh, then he does the next step. He builds a small team and says, okay, I'm the lead scientist. I need a finance guy. I need a business development guy. I need uh, three more scientists to just oversimplify it. And with that package, he then goes to public funding agencies. And usually successful in getting three to four million public funds committed. Um, the process is, in my opinion, straightforward. Uh, talk with the regulatory authorities. Uh, they tell you you need study one, two, three, four, five to come from your stage to the end of the preclinical stage, and you have a clinical candidate. Hooray! <laughs> For that, you use the capital. And when the company is close to the clinical candidate stage. So before the clinic starts, they can go on the market and raise venture capital. So mm. this is the dynamics as far as I see it, uh, as far as I experienced it. From what I get from you now, I think the 
the call to action for a public funding agency would be if you give a company 4 million euros, that's fine. But uh, always ask the question first, uh, use 10% of that capital uh, to find out if you're really using the best models. Because when you go down the wrong route here, it's 4 million wasted. If you take three or 400,000 euros to validate the models and do some work on that, uh, you might save a lot of money further down the road because it just switched to another model. So spend some time. And the same applies then to the venture world. Is this a perspective? Yeah, in fact, I, 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 maybe, maybe I'd be slightly mischievous here, but I'd actually do it a different way. I'd say um, I would, before I gave anyone 4 million, I would give someone else 100,000 <laughs> to evaluate their models. Mm. Okay. Right. This would, yeah, this would be maybe not. It would yeah. maybe would need a hundred thousand, but I think you need robust argumentation and testing around the model quality um, uh, before you give the money, because you know, because that would be my view. So, and certainly in the sort of private sector thinking I've been doing, I haven't really been thinking so much in terms of, sort of public funding, but in terms of you know the sort of private sector thinking, it's it's you know you want to understand the attributes of the model and its likely performance insofar as you can, right? I mean... Before, before you deploy capital. I would uh, I would phrase it for, for myself, I would phrase it in a way to say, okay, if, uh, if anybody who deploys capital for whatever reason is happy with just activity, they don't have to ask these questions. It's not right. a must because you're doing something. Yeah? You throw money into the market and okay. some scientists get going. But if you want to make sure, if you want okay, to. Okay, fine. Please, okay. If, if you think that step is inevitably going to be non judgmental, right? Then, yeah, you, 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 yeah, you would help them evaluate things so that when they actually did it and came to raise more money, they had something that was defensible. Yeah, I think it increases the probability of success at the end of the day. If, yeah. um, just activities uh, is, it doesn't solve the productivity problem, but the productivity problem is not really the problem of politicians. They just need to do something. Okay. But okay. if they want to make sure they use the money in, a, in the in the best way, then it would make se- it definitely makes sense to invest more in the validity of the models. Jack, is there anything open in the discussion that you would like to discuss that I didn't ask so far? Um, I think we've covered most things. I, there, was, there, was, there was just one thing, actually, that we sort of discussed a bit previously that, we, that hasn't come up that I think I'll mention, mm-hmm. which is I think a lot of the work I've done has taken a sort of a fairly technical view of what you might call decision tools or models, right? So we use models because we think they'll tell us about drug candidates allow us to make decisions. And sometimes when other people write about your work, you realize they've done a better job than you have, right? And and there was a recent review or short blog written by a guy called uh, David Shaywitz where he um, uh, compared some stuff I'd written about the model validity with, with stuff that a guy called David Granger had has written. And David Granger um, is a UK-based, very, very experienced sort of biotech investor slash serial start mm-hmm. And he wrote a piece about um, effectively eliminating managerial biases in progression decisions. Mm-hmm. And then also there's a literature which comes out of AstraZeneca 
which also allude, was alluded to by a guy called Mike Ringel in a paper I wrote with him, which again, for which he should take credit, not me, which talked about truth-seeking rather than progression-seeking behaviour. Mm-hmm. And, and it just struck me that I think all of these strands are sort of pointing in roughly the same direction. There's a sort of big idea. And the big idea is that um, we want our decisions to be based on considerations where our, where our assumed judgment of candidate utility is maximally correlated with real clinical utility. And there's a whole bunch of different ways it can be decorrelated. I think a lot of my focus has been on the technical side, right? We use the wrong models, we interpret them badly. But the sort of Granger and, and the Granger view is more actually on the decorrelations in the managerial side, i.e. we've got biases, which mean we could have made a better decision based on our, our, the availability of our technical data, but we didn't. Right. And then Astra, the AstraZeneca view sort of actually does a bit of both, right? It's about actually here are the technical inputs you need to look at. And then here are the managerial processes you need to have in place to make sure that people make the right decision given the technical inputs they've got. So, so I just think that there's a sort of broader literature here around the sort of rigorous, aggressive attempts to remove anything that decorrelates our decision from uh, uh, clinical utility. So I think that's a kind of broader way of looking at it. So I think that's probably the only thing I'd like to add. What are the main findings in this managerial um, decision-making processes uh, that you could point out uh, that make sense to implement? So um, the, the the Grange one is very interesting. It's really that you, I mean, they used to talk about some asset light models. It's that you don't build institutions that have biases, which mean that assets keep going if they shouldn't, right? So you sort of separate. So, you, you know, so for example, one practical implementation, you know, one practical thing is you outsource a lot of stuff, right? You have a sort of small kind of virtual biotech type models, right? So, that you, because, you, know, so you don't have 200 people who get fired if you shut down a project, right? Which makes it easier to shut down the projects that you should shut down. Uh, and the AstraZeneca one, They've got some quite good, they call it their five pillars, right? They've got some quite good sort of language about truth-seeking versus progression-seeking. But the sorts mm-hmm. of things they used to do, and again, I'm, I'm caricaturing a bit because I, you know, I haven't read the paper for probably about six months or eight months. But, uh, but you know, if you've got medicinal chemists, for God's sake, don't give them a bonus for simply making lots of compounds, right? Because, you know, if you want a backup compound, it should be chemically different from the lead compound, but still potent on the target. Because if it's chemically different, but still potent on the target, if the first one fails for some reason, the second one might work. If you simply paid them to produce lots of backup compounds, what you'll find is you'll have lots of backup compounds that are all almost exactly the same as the lead compound. So the AstraZeneca work is quite interesting around companies shifting away from a lot of sort of quantity-related metrics to more sort of quality or truth-related measures. And, and it does appear that they did see an uptick in R and D productivity as uh, as a result of that. Really, is it is it so? So, when I understand, okay, you, you, you never know. What you, it's always it's always hard to dissociate survivor bias from yeah. from actual from actual right truth, right? But I think in Astra's case, I think there was a pretty spec. I think I think there was a two things. I think there was luck plus a genuine R and D turnaround. Mm-hmm. 
right? So I, you know, I think the two things probably went hand in hand. But AstraZeneca for years, when I worked in investment running up to probably around 2010-ish, or maybe even a little bit beyond that, there was a sort of there was a sort of investors joke around AstraZeneca, which they were the drug company that did everything right apart from discover drugs. <laughs> right. So they were they were very investor friendly. They were incredibly sort of commercially effective. They bought back loads of stock. They paid a huge dividend. But the only thing they didn't do was ever discover any drugs. And then since 2010, AstraZeneca have kind of reinvented themselves as actually a very successful oncology company, which actually has brought a number of very good um, or very successful drugs to market. Right, And that turnaround went around with a, sort of, with a major internal sort of re-engineering project where they went from this kind of progression-seeking to truth-seeking. Now, of course, from the outside, it's impossible to know quite how much one contributed to the other, right? But, but at least it, it's, it's plausible and it's well articulated and very interesting. Yeah, I can. I mean, so there's two papers. If you look, if you look for papers called Five Pillars, I think it's mm -hmm. called, uh, and Took is one of the authors, C O O K. Um, there's like two papers from Astra, AstraZeneca, one on the kind of diagnosis, and then one on actually things seem to be getting a bit better now. I mean, at the end of the day, it means um, go after the truth, not politics in companies. So, um, reduce, as you mentioned, reduce your bias and find the truth. And there is also what I got from what you said in the last few minutes, this is also the case for small biotechs then. Uh, take the science from scientists and give it uh, to the Rather, development teams. Yeah, put, put the structures in place such that you can decouple or other, that you can effectively link progression decisions to clinical utility and mm. you remove the sort of organizational distractions and biases that might otherwise force you from prevent you from doing the right thing from a sort of uh, uh, returns perspective this is the justification for in my opinion for the this 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 middle stage between science and markets so you have big pharma you have uh, research organizations and you made just the case for uh, small biotechs so it makes sense to have these companies in the market that just have to function properly to verify or falsify uh, whether a drug candidate qualifies to move forward or uh, not, but they have to do it in a way that they are after the truth and uh, yeah. not just because uh, it's and, and Exactly, and you don't want to put them in a position where it's in their interest to burn all the cash, even if they've stopped believing that the asset's likely to work, right? How, how can you do that? How can you do that? Well, that's that's the, I would, I, again, I would refer you to the David Granger Shaywitz article. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's a way of leaving links or something at the end of this, but I, I will, I will but, sort of... I will tweet or something, or you can do something so that the, the papers I've mentioned are available to people if they want. So we have uh, the event on LinkedIn. So okay. if you have, I will links, append. I, I will append the papers that I've referred to and the, and the reports that I've referred to. And uh, when you post it on LinkedIn under the event as a comment, I can also take okay. them then and uh, uh, add them to the description of the podcast. So what happens okay. afterwards is that I do post production. I think it will currently take three to four weeks. Okay. Um, to clean up the audio, uh, take up pauses or when something was interrupted in our conversation. Yeah. And I will add your links then to the description of the podcast episode and distribute it, the links with the episode. Okay. Jack, is there anything open that you would like to discuss? No, I, I think that's I think that's it. And we've taken two hours. So so anyone who's been here the whole time is probably thoroughly sick of me. So we should I we should probably stop. I, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. It's 
thank you very much for your research. Um, it helped me to understand the drug development process much, much better and uh, has and you drew with your research my attention to a point where I had clearly a blind spot. So I always thought it's a problem of capital. It's my bias. So as uh, any <laughs> business management economics guy, I try to throw capital on the things. And this might not probably always be the best solution. Uh, thank you very much for your research. Uh, it would be great to have an update in a couple of months or years uh, to see where the drug development okay. process was heading. I love the conversation. Uh, you are doing a great work, and I hope we meet soon in reality. Lockdowns are over, luckily, so we can... Okay, well, no, thank then. you so much. I, I've really enjoyed it, uh, both the preparation process and doing it. So thanks very much. Jack, have a great day. Enjoy your time. See you okay, soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you very much for tuning into this episode. If you found this content valuable and informative, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Your review will help more people discover the show and benefit from the content. Please don't forget to hit the like and share button on your favorite social media channels to spread the word to your friends and followers. It helps to grow the followership of the podcast and this in turn helps to attract more exciting guests and create even more engaging content for you. I appreciate your support in helping reaching a wider audience. Thank you for being part of the journey and I can't wait to bring you more guests and more great content in the future.